Well, hi everybody and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. This is Toby Miller here. I'm in the tea rooms of the St Pancras Hotel with a new friend who's about to correct my pronunciation of her name. I'm going to try this, Mirka Marianu. Actually, this is very good. That's not too bad? It's But how, how would you say it? Okay, well in Greek, the yeah. name is Mirka Marianu. Marianu. So, Marianu. Marianu. But the D is a V, it's very soft. Ma- Mirka Marianu. Yeah, that's perfect actually. I think your Spanish comes, that helps a lot to have, I think, a Spanish. Uh, Spanish speaking uh. in terms of pronouncing Greek uh, consonants. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, but I'm, I'm happy with the anglicized version. I'm quite used to it. What, what do we normally call you? What do you hear? I hear lots of things. <laughs> right. Okay, I mean, pronunciations of your name, let's stick to those. <laughs> so, no, no, that's what I mean. Um, but no, I'm, I'm, my surname is usually anglicized as Matiano, and I'm, I'm happy with that. I'm quite used Right, to that, so it's a so. question of emphasis on the syllable yeah, as much the, as anything. And the D. And the D becoming. The D becoming yeah, but it's, right. yeah. That's fine. <laughs> so, I was fortunate enough to hear a brilliant talk you gave the other day. Uh, which was focusing on so-called hum- humanitarian technologies. I wondered, I don't know if that's what you're working on now or that's sort of done, but I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that work, because this was a major collaborative grant you were on, had a very good web page, which I'm sure you'll direct people to, but, but it, seems, it seems as though you're more or less at the end of that particular bit of work, is that right? Um, the project officially ended uh, just before Christmas, and it was. Um, this is Christmas uh, 2015. Uh, 2015. We're in we're in January Absolutely, 2016. Yes. So, so, so the, it, this was um, uh, ESRC, so that's the Economic and Social uh, Research Council of the UK, which funded us for 18 months to do uh, a study of the Typhoon Haiyan recovery. Mm. You may recall Typhoon Haiyan hit the Philippines in November 2014. And it's still the strongest typhoon ever recorded. Is it? Yeah, the strongest storm in terms of um, uh, strength of winds and so on. But it also caused a enormous uh, destruction. Mm, mm. More than six thousand people uh, died, and that's the official count. Unofficially, the number is a lot higher, and um, and there were, I think, more than twelve million people affected, most displaced. Mm. So very major catastrophe and it, it did also um, attract a lot of attention both in the world's media. Of course there's a temporality of disasters, we may have forgotten about it now, but at the time it was yeah. really major in the news. And, and all major agencies, uh, humanitarian agencies, sent aid to the Philippines in the areas affected. This is the central Philippines, the Visayas areas, and especially the island of Leyte uh, and the, its capital, Tacloban. So we got this funding to uh, spend um, a year in the affected areas. We, we chose two sites, the city of Tacloban and an island that we don't name. We wish to keep it anonymous because it's so small. Once it's named, it can be recognized, and we don't want to jeopardize people's uh, uh, trust to us because we've promised people anonymity in the project. So we have these two sites where we spent 10 months, and it was a collaborative uh, project. Uh, So we looked at affected people, how they coped in the aftermath of the disaster, and then we also looked at the agencies, you know, the humanitarian workers, Mm. but also the government officials, the various stakeholders involved in the recovery, and how they also... Uh, responded to the events and and also 
specifically to the use of communication technologies. Now, I don't know if you're aware, there is this very, there's this huge optimism about what new communication technologies can achieve in the context of humanitarian uh, aid and in the context of disaster recovery. So in a way we were responding to this optimism, mm. this idea that technologies can give voice to affected people, encourage mm -hmm. participation, uh, um, correct the power asymmetries for which humanitarianism has been criticized over and over again. And, and so we, we said, okay, let's pose that as a question. There is very little evidence to support all these big claims. So let's go out in the field and spend a year uh, following the events and, and, and following the, you know, the recovery and its politics in the context of everyday life and see whether technologies make a difference or not. So that's the project. Now, the offici officially the research has ended, but the writing continues, so it's not something I'm done with. Uh, so it's very much ongoing, as far as I'm concerned. And who were your collaborators? Yeah, I should say that definitely. So, uh, my collaborators, this was a, a five-member uh, team. Five team. Um, I'm one of the uh, five people, and I was leading the project, but um, uh, Jonathan Ong, who's at the University of Leicester, uh, was a co-investigator. Um, Nicole Curato, who is at the uh, University of Canberra in Australia, Joel Cornelio uh, at the Ateneo de Manila University, and Liza Longbon was the postdoctoral research assistant. Mm. So, uh, this is the That's quite a group. So before we get on to the scoop yes. about the importance of these funny little yeah. dispositifs that we carry around in our pocketbooks, what is the humanitarian world? Oh gosh, it's a very interesting field actually. Uh, it's a very complex field and um, uh, and a very reflexive field as well. Um, I don't think I've come across a profession that is so aware of its own limitations and talks about them so often. I think that makes humanitarian workers a very interesting group to study. And, so they're massively, so massively self-critical. Yeah, yeah. I think it's one of the sort of unique features. Mm. But it's a very... Um, uh, interesting field. It's a field that has grown enormously over the last few years. Um, um, I don't remember all the figures, uh, but uh, the budget for you know, humanitarian aid is, is, is uh, quadrupled over the last uh, couple of decades. And, and there is um, a lot of shift from what used to be sort of state-delivered now being NGO delivered. Non-government so, organizations. Yes. So it's the civil society fetish rather than the governmental fetish. But the governments are still involved. That's, we need to remember that. The governments continue to be the major funders of humanitarian agencies. So they are um, essentially giving money to agencies to, to, to carry out projects that maybe 20 or 30 years they would be doing. Thank you. Thank you. Can, um, I, can I, when you get a moment, sorry to interrupt again, Mirka, can I get a refill of my wee little you know, yes, wee pot of tea there, yes, please? Thank you. So. Yeah. So, the, so this is a, there is a, a very interesting. Uh, there's, uh, you know, humanitarianism can also be understood as an industry in a sense. But in, mm. in, in, in humanitarian agencies compete for projects, and 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 states states or you know, governments are very often funders of this project mm. and, and demand evidence for the impact that the projects 
Uh, this sounds achieve. like British academia to it me. It absolutely sounds like British academia. And, uh, and, 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 and there, is, there is actually a fascinating book uh, by Monica Krause, who's also at Goldsmiths in the Department of Sociology. Mm. She's written this book called The Good Project. And she's providing a very, you know, an excellent account of the workings of um, humanitarianism, um, not in relation to the questions of technology that I'm interested in particular, mm. but um, I think, you know, it's, it's a very fascinating study to read. Um, and. So, it, yeah, this is, it's a fascinating field and it's interesting to see the parallels with other, um, you know, aspects of public life. You know, Accountability, pa yeah, auditing and so on. In, in yeah. terms of the kinds of institutions we're talking about, are these both gigantic things like Red Crescent and little things? Thank you very much. Like little NGOs of five people. Is it that spectrum? There is, yes. I mean, there are the major players. Of course, you have the UN agencies, which are right. a, sort of a separate um, category. Uh, uh, they're not NGOs, they're intergovernmental uh, organizations. But then you have the major um, uh, humanitarian uh, agencies and then smaller agencies. Um, and, and you also then have these. Um, agencies which are doing a mixture of development work and humanitarian emergency work, which is also quite interesting as well. And there is an increasing blurring of the boundaries between development work and humanitarian work. So in the Haiyan field, you know, in the Haiyan disaster that we've been, we've been studying, we saw agencies arriving to do the relief work, the, you know, the immediate work of sort of saving lives and uh, providing immediate relief, but then staying on for a year or and some are there today to do the more developmental work around sort of um, you know sanitation and, uh, and and so on, which is not necessarily responding to a disaster. It's much more long term. So there is that boundary uh, blurring uh, going on. And for you, as can I call you ethnographers, or is that the wrong term in this case for you? I do ethnography, so no. I guess you could. Okay. I mean, I'm yeah. For you as ethnographers entering a crisis, yeah. that's a bit different from classic ethnography, which is about more or less entering a, a stable society to understand its kinship systems, yeah. its forms of governance, its economy, and its familial tendencies. Absolutely. I mean, it's still very unusual to go and do something as um, prolonged as a response to an emergency. In a way, it was quite counterintuitive when we applied to do an ethnography of disaster recovery. I'll be surprised that we got the money. Delighted, but also surprised, because most work on disasters is very short, short term. And, 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 and I am actually arguing that this slowness of ethnography, the slow nature of ethnographic work, is really insightful for understanding what's going on in disasters. So you have sort of the emergency context, things have to be done quickly. But to understand really what's going on, when so many actors are involved and so many power struggles are at play, you, you need to have that kind of wide lens that ethnography can provide and stay long enough to understand the kind of drawn-up nature of recovery, because recovery can last for years, sometimes decades. I mean, in Katrina, in Hurricane Katrina, some parts of New Orleans never recovered, arguably. So. It's not something that, you know, takes place very quickly. So I think 
ethnography is actually quite well suited for for disasters, uh, for the context of, of disasters. Um, but it is, I recognize, quite unusual um, from other types of ethnography which require this long-term immersion. I would say one thing though, that whilst we were there, and Liza Lombon certainly because she was there for the longest uh, than all of us, she spent 10 months in the field, but all of us, you know, when we were going in the field and spending time there, we didn't just do the disaster stuff, we didn't just interview people and call that ethnography, we went to you know, funeral wakes, we went to baptisms, you know, we have developed this very close rapport with participants, really trying to understand the kind of grain of everyday life. And then through that, also understand how the recovery is unfolding. But what about pitching in? Mm. And I ask this because I, I once spent quite a lot of time with Frederick Wiseman okay. and oh. talking to Fred about some of his documentaries. Yeah. I asked him about occasions when he felt like intervening. Uh, yeah. when, he, when a sex worker was being garroted by a police officer in front of his camera, when a visually disabled child got away from his carers and was walking down concrete steps. Yeah. And the camera followed in both cases. What's the point where you're in a situation where you're expected to pitch in or you think you should pitch in or you think you should pitch in. Do you know what I mean? I, I mean, I take a very participatory view of photography. Uh -huh. I'm not observing. I think that's a really problematic way. Or anyway, it's not the way I do it. I, yeah. I, I feel that I am part of what's going on. Uh, and and so we, we, we try to kind of develop this empathetic understanding of what's going on in people's lives, but we also participate in the actual happenings. And in previous projects, I had to, you know, you know, write, you know, um, funding applications to help, for example, a cultural center to get funding so that it could survive. And that was not part of the remit of my research, but it was part of what I felt like, you know, might have to do as, as, as you know, being part of, of the, you know, being a close to a particular institution and believing in what they were doing. So you are a human being and you participate and it's this reciprocity, it's through your own experience of um, going through some of the same things that your participants are going through that you actually understand what is going on. Mm. Now I don't want to completely equalize things but there was there was an asymmetry there. We didn't go exactly through everything. Didn't, I didn't lose my home in the club and I didn't, none of us did. Uh, so there is an asymmetry, and I'm aware of the asymmetry. But still, I think to what to the extent that it was possible, we experienced some of the things that were happening mm, to our yeah, participants, yeah. and we didn't just observe things, you know, from, from our ivory tower and, and just keep notes. Now I've got to ask you about the scoop bit, uh, which okay. I found utterly fascinating in your presentation the other day. And I should say, we'd actually agreed we'd do this podcast before I even knew I was going to be hearing you. So it was a great bonus for me, having read your work over many years, then to hear you. But, uh, so, these funny little things in our pocketbooks that we stick next to our heads and type on. Yeah. How relevant? I think they are very relevant, but they're not always relevant in the ways that you know, uh, humanitarian agencies or telecoms companies or governments might assume they, they will be relevant. So uh, I, I, I think they're relevant, but I leave it as an open question, how are they relevant? What we found in this project is that 
the assumed uses of technology were not necessarily translating into actual uses in people's everyday lives. So there was this discrepancy, there was this disconnect, if you like. So a big assumption about technologies concerns the question of voice. I mean, do technologies give people a voice? Do they essentially encourage affected people to participate in disaster recovery? This is the, uh, the, the question that uh, humanitarian agencies are, are asking, or the assumption that they might be making. And what we found is that this distribution of uh, technologically enabled voice, this distribution of participation essentially, was very unequal. It was only um, the more affluent participants that were able to use technologies like smartphones or mobile phones or uh, social media to improve their life chances in the context of recovery or to participate in those The poorer participants, who were also those who were most hit, didn't really use technologies in, in, in in, in that way, or, or may, they might have used it, but occasionally, uh, or under certain circumstances. Uh, so I wouldn't say that technologies were offering people, giving people a voice. When voice, when 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 low-income people had a voice, it was because, for example, there were. Um, powerful intermediaries that were uh, playing a role. For example, uh, there was a case of an advocacy group that was working with uh, uh, a group of women who had been badly hit by the disaster. They had lost their homes and everything. And, and it was through this advocacy group that women were able to then use technology in an empowering way to raise their concerns with the local government and the local NGOs and actually get some extra resources. Um, but when we found this lack of intermediaries or other structures of empowerment or capacity building, technology in and by itself didn't do anything really. Uh, what was interesting is that people use technology in, in un unanticipated ways or unanticipated by uh, the, the professionals of disaster recovery. So it was interesting how humanitarian radio, which was used, um, which was designed very much to uh, encourage information dissemination and also feedback by uh, affected people, uh, and and it, it used uh, the platform Frontline SMS. People could text to send their complaints, um, and what we found is that. Most texts that were sent to humanitarian radio stations were for uh, song requests. People valued the songs that were played in the Sunday music slot, which was just once a week. Uh, there was uh, some entertainment allowed in humanitarian radio, which is otherwise quite, quite um, serious and, and very much focused on, on information, especially in the early stages of, of, the, of the recovery. And, and that was very telling that, you know, people really wanted this ordinariness that came through music, through the structures that had been lost because of the disaster. People wanted to get back to their TV sets and watch, you know, teleseria, your soap operas. They, they, they wanted this uh, normality that had been disrupted. And entertainment was a core component of that. It was, it was. Entertainment and also relationship building. I mean, it was interesting in the internet cafes, which closed down because all lines were cut off, so there was no internet in Tacloban, for example, for 
almost two months after the, the typhoon hit. When the internet cafes opened, there were queues at the internet cafes because people wanted to do three things primarily. One was to contact their relatives abroad, and anyone who knows anything about the Philippines realizes that you know, this is to really ask help from abroad because relatives abroad means remittances. remittances. Um, Another group that was queuing to get in the cafes were gamers, you know, people who just wanted to, to go back to the yeah. communities of gaming. And again, it's kind of finding that ordinariness, that structure of everyday life mm. that is quite soothing and quite reassuring, mm. uh, perhaps. Mm. Uh, so I think that's very fascinating that mm. there are all these social uses of technology, uh, which are particularly meaningful for people, but they're not necessarily the normative uses of technology that are assumed or anticipated by um, those who are uh, you know, coordinating disaster recovery. Now, you mentioned the accountability impost, the audit culture yeah, of yeah. these third sector organizations. My recollection from your paper the other day is that a number of these wanted to use smartphones, for example, amongst other things, as a means of obtaining feedback. Yeah. yeah? I mean, there has been a big push um, amongst humanitarians for uh, improving accountability structures. Humanitarianism as a field, for many years, was um, seen as being largely unaccountable, and that was one of its failings that needed correction. And interactive technologies were seen as an opportunity to correct that, you know, to, to improve accountability to affected people. And that's a, a very, you know, noble, important thing, an important development. So what we saw in Haiyan is that um, most agencies rolled out a slew of programs which involved accountability to affected people. Most, most agencies would have an accountability team or at least one accountability officer. And, and, and most of them saw Typhoon Haiyan as an ideal laboratory to explore these uh, questions around accountability. I think partly because the Philippines is at the forefront of technological developments. Uh, it has a very high teledensity rate. Uh, it was recognized in the previous decade as the texting capital of the world. More texts are sent in the Philippines than any other country globally. So because of this technological um, uh, access, uh, it was seen as a good place to test accountability and uh, interactive technologies and whether the two could really uh, uh, you know, be combined. So this was also very interesting for us. So we really looked at what was going on in, in that area. And, and what, the first observation is that accountability was very narrowly defined as feedback. So it wasn't defined more broadly, because there are all sorts of ways in which you can understand accountability, but it was understood in a narrow way of feedback uh, mechanisms. Mm -hmm. So affected people were asked to give feedback about the relief projects that had been uh, rolled out in their areas. That was really how accountability was defined. And then there were a range of different possibilities through which this feedback could be collected. So you had cons con consultation meetings, you know, like boxes where people could leave their letters and say, we'd like this or we didn't like that. But also text messages, people could text, not through their smartphones, through their sort of conventional feature phones and say, this is our feedback. Um, and of all these different methods, 
the method that was prioritised was texting. That was also very interesting. And I think it's it's probably because of the feature of the technology. It can be easily. It's already a summary. It's 160 characters, so it can easily be collected onto a spreadsheet and 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 uh, and used in all sorts of ways. And the way it was mainly used was as evidence to donors, because as I said earlier, governments or you know, various donors are still very much used in, in or very much central to the humanitarian field. So they require evidence of their impact. Mm. And, and so this feedback that was meant to be there for affected people was often, not always, but actually most of the times used or sent, forwarded upwards. And, and, and it was forwarded to uh, the head office and from the head office to the donors and so on and so forth. And we didn't really find during our time in the field, during those 10 months, any evidence of it coming back into the field and really correcting the delivery of programs. So there was a big disconnect there. All this emphasis on feedback, this feedback fetish, but not necessarily feeding back into the affected people. So it's an interesting question, what is this process serving? Is it legitimating the projects? Is it legitimating the presence of the agencies? Um, uh, is it improving accountability structures? And I think it's something that um, I'm still exploring in, in, in now, I mentioned earlier the website that was a basis for some of this work. Can you tell people how they can Yeah, well, we have access? a website which, was, um, uh, which contains sort of a, a summary of our findings and also a list of some of our publications for this project and, and other events that we, we've organized or plan to organize. And it's uh, www.humanitariantechnologies.net. Mm. That's one word, humanitariantechnologies.net. So yes, people are welcome to uh, look at it and uh, they can also get in touch if they're interested. Great. And you're now at Goldsmiths, yes, you mentioned, here yes. in London. I'd like to go back, 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 as they say in baseball, <laughs> to ask you to review some of your earlier work. Okay. Would that be okay? Sure, you know, yes, so yes, of course. Let's go all the way back, as it were, <laughs> to when you're a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed person writing a doctorate. Okay. Is that That's a place to start? Oh, sure. You can remember? I can, of course. It's yesterday, Absolutely. come on. I can. No, it's more than that. But, uh, yeah, of course. I, yeah. So, where did that happen? What was that about? My PhD. Mm. Okay, well, my, my PhD was... Um, where it, I, I did my PhD at the LSE, and that was London School of Economics and Political Science. Yes, that, so I, I finished that uh, project in 2002. Yes. And the project, um, which was subsequently published as a book uh, in 2005, and it was called it is called Mediating the Nation. Um, it was about. Um, Sort of a study of the symbolic boundaries of identity and uh, nationalism in Greece. I was looking at the circulation of discourses about the nation mm. in Greek media, especially television news. Mm. And then I was interested in, in the ways people talked about themselves and the nation and, and how they contrasted their own experiences with these official discourses about the nation in the media. So it was really about um, 
the shift in boundaries of the nation, the shift in symbolic boundaries of the nation, because what I found is that unsurprisingly, Greek news were very nationalistic, and that's not a great surprise, but the way people talked about the nation shifted quite a lot. It wasn't a static thing. Um, and so, you know, people would at times embrace these discourses or at times reject them. And so it was interesting to see whether there was, how this boundary work was taking place and whether the media were responsible in sort of erecting these symbolic boundaries for inclusion or exclusion and, from public life. And you're doing all of this in the run-up to and then right after the Summer Olympics in Athens of 2004. In the run-up, the research was the, done the, the before. Original doctor, yes, and then the book comes out a, just after. Yeah. I imagine that was a time of nationalism in the bourgeois and press. There was a lot of a sort of pride around the Olympics. I mean, I guess I was quite... I was, in, I was doing this research before that. Um, I was looking a lot at events that were uh, very pro prominent in Greek public life in the, at the end of the, in the middle of the 90s and then towards the end of the 90s. I think the Kosovo um, uh, conflict was very prominent then. And that was what was very interesting for me, is that although that was an international affair, it was appropriated, it was filtered through a very nationalistic lens in Greece. So you would have thought an international event would actually cause a lot of... Um, uh, I mean, sort of a more critical, it would, it would allow for this distance to which people could discuss these issues, and yet it was, a, it was appropriated in a very nationalistic uh, frame. Uh, and, and some local, uh, sort of more national news, were seen by people a lot more critically. So it was interesting that there was this uh -huh. paradox almost. Um, and then I was look, working also for that project with the Turkish minority in Greece, which was, so I don't want to assume what you know, what it meant to be Greek. I was looking at people living in Athens and trying to look again at this, this shifting um, discourses about around identity. I guess in the period following the end of Yugoslavia, yeah. as it was, Macedonia becomes a major yes, issue absolutely. All for the Greek is, government. Absolutely. That was, that, that was a very... Um, that was quite a major... Um, uh, story and, 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 and a very, you know, a, a cause for this resurgence of nationalism yeah. in, in the 1990s and, and, and something that had, I had felt very uncomfortable about, I guess, in the 90s and, and propelled me to do a PhD. I was really trying to understand this kind of, you know, fervor and this, this kind of um, very closed way through which some events were interpreted and I wanted to make sense of that. So I guess that was one of the reasons I started this, this research. Would you relate that in any way to the very strong Greek sense of the present being filtered always through the past? Um, the glorious former past, yes, the city-state fantasy. There, there is a, 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 a glorification of the past in Greece and it is a very present feature of education, you know, of public life, um, and therefore it is um, very dominant, and I think it is a lens through which a lot of present events are filtered. But I think there is also, um, I mean, it isn't just that. Uh, I think modern Greek history is a lot more complex. Um, I'm not studying Greece anymore. Um, so I don't, this is not something I'm developing in my writing. But I think the, 
Relationships between Greece and so-called West or Western powers uh, are very interesting. Um, I'm very. I, I was very uh, interested in, 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 in a concept developed by the American anthropologist Michael Hertzfeld, this notion mm -hmm. of cultural intimacy, which um, really is about the way um, the nation relates to par what it perceives to be powerful outsiders, mm. and how there is the sense of presenting oneself or presenting the nation or the representatives of the nation in a very specific way that might be. Um, sort of pruned and, and uh, embellished sometimes, but there is a different kind of discourse that is allowed within the nation. And, and, and there are a number of things to discuss. I mean, Greece wasn't a colony, but certain colonial features might, one could argue, might be present in certain discourses. It's a very complex topic, but um, a fascinating one to study. Mm. Uh, and of course, yeah, there are geopolitics involved, all sorts of issues, which we also see at the moment with the current refugee crisis uh, and, 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 of course, the economic crisis. Um, so maybe one day I'll return to these topics. It feels but as not, though it would be uh, hard not to. So what did, once you'd gotten your, some of your answers, or at least your engagement with Greek nationalism out of the way, what did you move on to? I moved to the Philippines, actually. I guess <laughs> I, I felt I, I needed to shift uh, my attention, um, not just empirically, uh, but also in terms of um, the concepts, the, the tools I was working with. So I was interested in these questions of identity, the nation, and transnationalism, because as I said, I was working with minorities in Greece as well, not just with Greek um, citizens, Greek, Greek audiences, um, ethnic Greeks. Uh, so, I, I visited the Philippines in 2003 because I was invited uh, by a, um, a, 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 a Filipino anthropologist, uh, Raul Pertiera, and, and while I was there uh, to give a talk, um, I, I just realized that the Philippines is a fascinating country, um, but it also brings together some of my interests around um, transnationalism because of its strong migrant culture. Uh, more than 10% of the Filipino population work abroad, so it's a very intensely migrant society, but also with the prominence of uh, mobile phones and technologies. Uh, and I thought that would be a very interesting um, study to look at the ways human mobility, migration and technologies, mobile technologies are intersected. Um, and, 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 and look at it through the lens of transnationalism rather than identity, which is a more static concept. And, and, and so I wanted to move from identity as this more bounded concept. Even if we try to understand identity relationally, it is a more bounded concept than transnationalism, which focuses more on relationships, the dynamics between things. And so I started looking at transnational families uh, from the Philippines. Uh, especially migrants, uh, uh, well, domestic workers and nurses in the UK, and then also their left-behind children 
people remain in the Philippines. Today in and the uses of communication technologies in that context. Uh, so I was I really interested in what happens to these families. You know, can one have a family life in the mm -hmm. What are the consequences for intimacy and care? And can technology sort of alleviate some of these social costs of migration? Uh, so that became a major project for me, and I worked with that with Danny Miller um, uh, initially. But it's a project actually that carries on to become a bit of a life project for me because um, I got a grant from the, again from the ESRC, the Economic and Social Research Council, to do this research. But once the research was finished, I think I had developed such strong bonds with some of my uh, participants and families. Yeah. I got so involved in what was going on in their lives, and they got quite involved in my life, I would say, as um, I spent uh, a lot of time with the families in the Philippines, but also here, uh, that I continue working with some of these families, and, and I continue having a relationship with them. And, and I have some more recent writings from, from this work, um, so it's a bit of a life project. Yeah, and where could people find some of that work? The more recent work. There is a book called um, Me um, Migration and New Media, um, which was published in 2012 by Routledge. That's available, I guess. Um, For 400 pounds at a bookstore near you. I hope it's there is a paperback version, so it is cheaper. But it is, I am aware, not always easy to, to buy books, even if it's twenty dollars. <laughs> um, but there are articles that are available open access, and some of them are available on my university webpage at Goldsmith. I'm always willing to send articles if people want to email me. Um, I just published an article in this in a journal called Global Networks. Um, which looks at this more recent one and drawing on eight years of families. So this, this article is called Ambient for Presence. So it's about the, the ways in which we are together, but not because we intend to. You know, it's more peripheral awareness of distant others and how we might be aware of their rhythms, their daily lives, through small things like Skype icon coming on and off or uh, locative media, you know, the way people announce their location through functionalities of social uh, platforms. So that's available open access, anyone can download that. Uh, and, and there are other people, most of the papers are actually available open access, so if people search, they can find them, I think. <laughs> so, migration, identity, transnationalism, crisis. Yes. And communication technology. Mm, yes. Describe more or less the field, as it were, mm. and yeah. participation as well on your part. You want to have ongoing relationships with those you work with. Yeah. I think I'm very committed to this ethnographic kind of work. I find it very rewarding, I have to say. So it's also part of enjoying it. But I think I also find it intellectually important because. I'm, I'm very interested in the in the kind of depth of understanding you can reach through this immersion in, in other people's uh, lives. I'm also interested in this ordinariness of the everyday, the kind of invisibility of things that you can't actually see necessarily in an interview, the things that are often unsaid or un even unrealized sometimes, but are really significant. 
so to give you an example, um, in the, in the, in the uh, transnational families project, a very important question, quite, you know, that became very apparent to me early on in the project is why do some migrant women who have children in the Philippines don't go back to the Philippines after, you know, they pay for their children's education or after they've repaid the loan. There is this very, um, you know, migration is, was often described to me in short term. You know, people came here for two years and they wanted to go back once they had, you know, paid the the loan or the reason that kind of propelled them to yeah. come here. Yeah, or the alibi. Uh, well, so, and you know, I'm still in touch with a lot of my friends and they're all still here. So the question is, why? Why? Why, yeah. why do you not go back? You know, there's this enigma of return. There's, in such a moment, you know, just think VS9 post the enigma of arrival. I'm thinking of the enigma of return. Why not return? So, um, and I think what is interesting is that I think there's a deep ambivalence linked with migration. Others, of course, have written about the Stuart Hall, you know, this notion that there is no home to return to, you know, this change. But an amb deep ambivalence of migration. Oh, sorry, a deep, deep ambivalence of motherhood. And this fa the fact that for many of these women I'm, I've been working with, coming here to the UK, or sometimes coming to the UK after having been to other countries before coming here, um, there's also a sort of a sense of um, you know, acquiring autonomy, being empowered for the first time in their lives as breadwinners. For the first time, a lot of my participants told me that they were listened to. You know, somebody actually paid attention because they were the breadwinners. And, and, and this is interesting because this new sense of personhood that women acquired through migration is not something that they want to give up very easily. Uh, and, and to go back to the Philippines in a situation where you're subjugated or unemployed or just looking after the kids, I'm not just saying just because they love their kids profoundly, is not something that they can easily accept. And therefore, they stay here whilst using technologies to mother at a distance. And this is somehow a way to negotiate this deep ambivalence they feel. This ambivalence that I guess all mothers might feel who might also want to have a sense of autonomy, but also be mothers to their children. And just that this is a more extreme form of ambivalence. But that's not easily said, you know. It's a kind of a thing that you might not even articulate loudly. But you can understand through practices or through small things. And I think that if I hadn't taken this more ethnographic approach, I wouldn't even understand it. Uh, and so this is just to give you an example of how ethnography can actually reveal the unexpected or the, the unseen. So in Hong Kong, my queer friends who look at migrant issues say that a number of the Filipina domestic workers are queer and they have children and husbands back in the Philippines. They don't want to go back because they can be queer in Hong Kong and that's a part of it for them. Yeah, it can be all sorts of things, of so, course, you but know. Um, given that you're saying some of this is not really voiced in an overt way, what happens if you put this to them as you've just put it to me? Um, if you yeah. use the language of autonomy. Yeah, I might not use the language of autonomy, but I might have a conversation about, you know, why, you know, 
certain things might happen or not. And, and you can get, you know, quite frank answers. Um, it's interesting also because I think the language of media, the language of technology rather, um, the language of say, the mobile phone or the Skype, can, can be used very often to legitimate a lot of these decisions. Because you can say, I don't have to go back because I can still be a mother. I still know what's going on. I know exactly what my kids are they're doing for homework because we do homework together so is, uh, every day, you know, and we leave the webcam on for hours, so we have a sense of co-presence. Um, and, and, but that's interesting too. Um, so I think you get a range of different um, responses, but I think the trust that you develop can also allow a lot of things to be said more um, openly after a while. Uh, I think again, I haven't just been parachuted in to do an interview, one interview. I wouldn't have got the same range of responses that you know I can get after many years of you know, cup of tea and a nice chat. And some of the most interesting things are not actually said when you're interviewing, but actually they're said when you're having a cup of tea and you're catching up. Uh, and, and I think that's kind of what I've achieved at least with some of my friends. And, and I think that has been really meaningful for me and I'm eternally grateful. And I feel it will continue because, you know, it's a social relationship. You don't just cut it off. And so, um, yeah, it's something like a life project. So I'll be doing other things that take my different ideas further, but I think that's something I will probably continue doing. Um, Do you have well. plans for new projects that you can share with the group? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I'm very interested in these questions around the humanitarian uh, yeah. project, and so I'm, I would like to open it up to other context so that I can generalize a bit more um, but also um, I'm very interested in some of the questions on migration not around transnational families only, but questions around uh, you know other aspects of migration that are affected by mobile and social media I'm very much I'm very interested in the long-term consequences mediation so how long-term decisions about return or settlement can be affected. I'm interested in the decisions that propel people to migrate. So this source of imagination and how communication technologies might be communicated. But these are, you know, it's a range of projects that all have their own sort of... Uh, they're all kind of in... in, in in, in line, as it were. Yeah. Sure. Well, Mirka, thank you so much for being so frank and sharing so much of your brilliant research with us. It's been great. Thank you. And I hope you'll come back into the pod at some stage in the future, maybe with some of your Filipino friends. Oh. And maybe they'd like to join you. I always do promise anonymity, so that's really harder. But, yeah. I'll be happy to talk again. It was great to chat with you. Thank, Thank you so much. Bye.